So finally, we have uh, Nick, who is co-founder and director of product at OpenDesk, uh, which is a web platform offering design furniture that can be made locally all around the world. Um, so I asked Nick earlier a little strange question, and I asked what piece of uh, office furniture or item would he be and why? Um, I mean, he said a desk, which is, I mean, open desk. Do you, do you want to explain yes. why you said a desk? Well, um, it kind of is, you know, not to get yeah. too deep into it, but it's basically kind <laughs> of what we're trying to do. It's, it's, I quite like the idea that your desk is just this sort of background surface which kind of lives with you in your life and all sorts of bits that represent you and your stresses and your, you know, your paraphernalia all kind of are accommodated on it and, you know, just sort of fades into the background in many respects, but it's kind of important. Well, it does tie quite nicely in open desk. Yeah. So anyway, that's the real reason. This, th this is the reason why Nick is here. He's going to tell us a bit more about his experience in founding OpenDesk. So please welcome Nick to the stage. All right, well, thanks very much. So as you've heard, my name's Nick Iarodiakonu, which Adam made sure to stay well clear of. Um, yes, so I am yeah, one of the co-founders at OpenDesk. And today I'd like to tell you a little bit about what we do as a company and hopefully share some of our kind of thinking of how we kind of got to where we are today. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think perhaps to start with a little bit of a kind of backstory, a bit of the context of, of how this all kind of began. So back in around 2011, my co-founders and I were kind of getting into this stuff. Um, so basically digital fabrication, uh, things like you know, 3D printing, laser cutting, but specifically what we ended up looking at was, uh, was CNC uh, milling. So for anyone who doesn't know, that's basically cutting solid materials like wood and metal using a, a computer-controlled drill. And in particular, what we were interested in was this, basically the whole idea that there's a kind of maker movement emerging around these technologies, particularly as the price of the hardware starts dropping. And, you know, in cases like this, it's, it's right, you know, at the lowest point it can be. Effectively, that's an open-source design for a CNC mill, which is made from parts CNC milled, and, you know, you get the idea. So what we were interested in was, was where is this kind of really going? And, and in a sense, whilst there's a load of hype around things like 3D, pr 3D printing and so forth, what is the kind of viable space within which the kind of maker movement could operate today? And we were kind of interested in the idea that, you know, does it start to actually uh, challenge our accepted model of the sort of previous century, the last, you know, 100 years odd of the 20th century model of mass production, you know, and to generalise a little bit, but I think everyone gets the idea here, you know, the idea that kind of design and manufacturing are increasingly kind of divorced activities, that manufacturing happens, you know, typically where the land and the labour is cheapest, you know, on the other side of the world, if you're in the you know, developed west or kind of global north, arguably, and then lots of logistics and so forth. And whether or not with these new sorts of technologies, um, you know, eventually we'd start to see something different where basically distributed manufacturing would start to become a reality and by extension that would mean that sort of local manufacturing could potentially come, become an economic reality again. And also this threw up interesting questions about what happens to the idea of, of design and manufacturing when you, when you start thinking about digital and what are the implications on, on things like intellectual property and so forth. So we kind of started by setting ourselves a you know, modest challenge, uh, which is basically this. Can we build a business model for what we termed open making, which is basically this idea that we're sort of referencing thinking about things like open source software, which we felt would be increasingly relevant as design and manufacturing become more digitized, but also the idea of open as in, as in more transparent, more social, because one thing we, we felt or we hoped 
would, would be a sort of byproduct of, of this idea of distributed making is, is this idea that actually things become, you know, less intermediaries are required and things become inherently more, more kind of local and social. So we tried to sort of imagine a platform which would provide incentives for the various parties we felt were important, designers who are designing for process, makers who have the necessary technologies to fabricate things sort of on demand, and then, you know, us, the rest of us, basically, people who might want to have products that are delivered in this way. And so the first thing we did is we decided to focus on CNC machining, as I said, and the reason we made that decision is because we felt that in the spectrum of sort of digital fabrication technologies, it's, in a way, it's the least exciting because it's the oldest, it's been around in industry for decades, but also it has other benefits because, for the most part, you can, you can deal with bigger physical objects, um, you know, than you can in the kind of domestic end of the 3D printing kind of uh, sort of scale of the market. Um, and the other thing we decided to focus on was basically furniture because we felt that it kind of mapped well, was conducive to the kinds of technologies, that, the, the kind of products, sorry, that CNC uh, milling can produce. And in fact, you know, in industry, that's already kind of uh, what, what happens in, in many cases, but also that it was the sorts of products and scales of products that, you know, would, would have a market already that we could start to explore in. Okay, so that's kind of how we began. So what is OpenDesk? Well, it's basically a website which... Uh, offers design furniture, specifically workspace furniture, um, which is designed to be made locally all around the world. And the thing we kind of started with, uh, hence the, the name, um, was this thing we developed ourselves as a kind of open source desk. And the point about this was it was, it was designed to be produced uh, on a CNC machine like this, basically milled out of four sheets of plywood or other laminate materials. Um, and the idea was that you'd have this kit of parts and a maker could then do some, some, a little bit of gluing and a bit of finishing and end up with a kind of flat pack product which could basically be kind of delivered to, to a customer and then basically assembled without the need for additional fixings and hardware uh, in just a few minutes to kind of give you a kind of four-person workstation. Um, and then we kind of took the designs for that and we decided to host them online and, and publish them under basically an open license, a Creative Commons attribution license, um, and make them available to download for people to kind of make themselves. And, and what we wanted to do was just sort of watch how this kind of played out um, in different locations. And then in parallel, we started looking at a range of other kind of products, again, looking at workspaces, same technology, again, a limited palette of materials. And we've been quite careful so far to try and constrain ourselves to, to sort of you know, solve the problem in a subset of, of all of the kind of possible design space one can imagine. So we did things like this. It's kind of an adjustable height, um, sit, sort of sit-to-stand desk. Um, but perhaps more importantly, we started to find other designers, independent designers around the world, who were already thinking about the technologies and basically kind of designing similar things. So this is not one of ours. That's sort of a workspace booth. But, you know, there's examples like this one, which was quite fun, um, a team... Uh, called AtFab in the US, Anne and Gary, who design already, again, CNC mills, kind of predominantly ply furniture like this. Um, and this is Dennis uh, in Sao Paulo in Brazil, who makes a bunch of furniture like this kind of little flat-pack chair. And so basically what started happening is this sort of library of, of designs that we kind of could offer began kind of to grow. Um, and we made the decision sort of very early on that we wanted to be kind of as inclusive um, as we could be, but also we wanted to try, as I say, to understand what's kind of already out there. So we built a page which is called the studio where people could come along and, and basically just pin photos of designs that they developed or that they discovered that they thought would fit. Uh, and then other people can express an interest on those by basically voting on them, sort of expressing a want simple as that. And then we can actually work, you know, with things that make sense with those designers to try and bring their products sort of onto the platform. 
Now, of course, the, the point of having all these designs and what we're really trying to do is actually make them sort of makeable, to make them, you know, uh, sort of fulfillable through, through a network of makers. So on the other side of the platform, we do have uh, all these sort of uh, open desk maker kind of community. And this is basically independent CNC operators, different sorts of levels between a kind of pro-am, kind of fab lab maker, all the way up to, to sort of professional shops. And what we found really interesting was uh, the, the quality of the products that these people could already deliver was, was quite exceptional. And I think the thing that was really surprising to us was to, to sort of realize that actually so many, because I think partly the nature of the, of the CNC technology, so many of these makers are already out there in a kind of B2B supply chain. It's just that they're kind of hidden. So, you know, you had this sort of scenario where kind of 2008 or whatever, you know, a big supply chain partner would, would, would disappear and suddenly all these sort of micro-businesses would go with them, whereas actually, you know, the, these are many, in many cases are kind of one, two, five-man businesses. They don't have a marketing budget and so on. So, we, we, so, you know, that was sort of really interesting to us. So what's the process? Well, basically, um, so we as a site host the designs and basically what that is is, is CAD files, computer design files, which are sort of basically laid out to, to reflect the kind of the, the plywood or the laminate in this case sort of materials. Um, and those are available to download and they're in a, in a basically a very accessible CAD format. And you take those files and, and you can either make them yourself or say take them to a professional maker. Um, and basically then with a little bit of pre-prep work they get put onto the bed of the CNC machine and you get a kit of parts cut. And then in practice this sort of thing is what happens. And you know, that last mile logistic is, is very often this. It's basically the back of a, of a transit van with a bunch of, of bits of wood. Um, and those end up going to site and then getting assembled on site by the maker themselves or by the end user if they're so inclined. You know, and hopefully you end up with some kind of usable workspace furniture. But I guess the important thing about this and what we've been sort of really trying to build is this idea of, of the sort of business model. And so when someone commits to sort of buy a product in this way, they're not only committing to kind of pay the maker for materials and, and labor and you know, their profits and so on, but they're also committing to pay the designer a design fee. And, and unlike a, a traditional channel where we'd be sort of dictating royalties to a designer and we'd probably be asking for exclusivity and so on, in this case we say, well, look, if, if the final price makes sense and people want the product, we're very happy for the designer to basically define what they think is, is a reasonable design fee. And, you know, and as we move into the future, we're seeing that as being quite a fluid relationship where effectively a designer can just change at any given moment what they think a particular product ought to be if it's well efficiently designed and so forth. Um, and finally, you're committing to pay OpenDesk a fee, and that's a transaction fee, but the, but the big point here is that a bit like an open source software company where you know, people can publish their, their sort of code open source, but then they'll build value-added services for themselves around, around the model, what we're doing is basically trying to build our own value-added services, sort of agency services and so forth around this idea of building a kind of network. And the point is this yields a kind of final price which is transparently communicated to the customer and hopefully there's a kind of incentive for everyone involved. So while this kind of making is going on, um, sort of DIY production and, and sort of jobs for order, we've got this page which we call the workshop where people can basically just sort of you know, post user-generated content, photos, videos, and, and comments and so forth about the sort of making process. And the thing that was really important to us about doing this was this idea that whilst you know, the, the technologies are there and, and the products are kind of digital at heart. And in practice, there's still a large amount of craft and actual making involved. And we wanted to kind of convey this fact that although it's local and the machine deals with some of the complexity, actually, this, every one of these products is still actually made to order. Uh, and so what we do is we have this kind of thing where every download, every purchase of a, of a product gives you basically a kind of unique URL, um, kind of like a barcode, a, a QR code, and basically a kind of 
a feed where the maker, the designer, the, the end user can post content again and it can be geolocated. So you basically get a kind of supply chain map of every single, of every single thing. Um, now the other thing, of course, that starts to happen, which we've been exploring, is this idea that as you digitize the designing and the making, that, you know, a bit, again, akin to sort of the software world, this can start to happen, where basically variants or versions of, of products can emerge. You start with one thing, either you change your mind and, and sort of supersede that, or you start to fork it and, and you get sort of designs bifurcating off one product. And again, you get that sort of blurring between hardware and software. So in practice, we have things like this, uh, which we call the Slim Desk, which is basically a variation of the original desk we designed. But what's interesting about this one, it has these sort of little modular cable tray inserts. And the whole idea behind those is that you can have a kind of set of things that could go with them, and notionally, people can design more things. So we have things like an LED light fitting, a kind of iPad and an iPhone stand for charging, for charging your, your devices, cable, you know, tidy, uh, sorry, desk tidies and so forth. Um, and the other thing uh, which can happen as a result of the technology, of course, is, is this. And actually, at this point, I'm going to jump over here and get my party trick out. So uh, this was a little 24-hour design exercise. <laughs> Just, um, you know, once the machine is, is kind of going, to be honest, the sort of... Um, you know, the cost of, of, of doing something like this is, is virtually negligible. There's a tiny bit of design time, a little bit more machining time, but you know, by and large, you can imagine lots of sort of personalization and stuff becomes possible. So in practice, what we do as a business and how we make sort of most of our money today is we kind of do this. We work with individual workspace customers, whether it's a single piece of furniture or a whole kind of fit out, and we try and you know, work with them to see what they need, what they want, co-design as much as we can, and then basically take on board their customizations, their personalizations and so forth to products and try and give them sort of an environment that, that's, you know, that looks like what they'd like it to like. Um, and so here's some examples. This is uh, Greenpeace just up the road here in Islington who we've been working with on their office space. Um, there's a small shared workspace um, by Spark Ventures, which is sort of central London. Again, this was actually the, that slim desk design. As you can see, the lighting was designed for them and then subsequently became a product we could offer elsewhere. And then there's companies like Top10.com, um, hotel booking startup based in Soho, who, again, we worked with on, on their kind of um, on their workspace. And there's a whole number of, of businesses like this who are kind of embracing the idea that they're trying to support this kind of model and, and working with us. And I'd say for the majority of, of these businesses, we're talking about creative agencies, creative companies, uh, tech startups, um, you know, shared workspace and so forth. And I think the general trend is businesses where, if you like, they're, they're either growing rapidly or they have quite flexible requirements and therefore they, they see not only that it's sort of they're supporting a new model, but also there's other attendant benefits, which I'll, which I'll come on to in a second. And all of these projects are being delivered by local independent makers like this. So this is Associated Fabrication in Brooklyn, uh, working on a slightly customized desk design for DigitalOcean, who are in Manhattan. And there's a sort of another example, which I, I like to cite. To me, it kind of embodies a lot of what we're trying to do, which is another job in, in New York, where we worked with a maker we'd never worked with before. We sent them some designs for a table, uh, we gave them a, a week, I think, deadline. Um, and then, you know, not only did they make a kind of beautiful product at the end of that, but what was really amazing was this. Basically, from point of production to the final point of use, it was just a sort of 15-minute drive across New York. So we're starting to see these kind of things, uh, this kind of example kind of playing out in, in other places around the world. And so this is, uh, this is the desk in question. So just that one design. It's about, I think, currently 12,000 downloads and, and builds and you can see the sort of geographic spread of that kind of beginning. And I think one thing that's quite interesting about this is, you know, immediately you see the concentration 
of, uh, of sort of Europe and US. Uh, and obviously that maps to the sort of maker movement trend. But I think what's kind of obvious is that, you know, the economics of it already seem to be making sense versus what one would expect, which would be the manufacturing to sort of happen elsewhere. Um, and in that vein, we are seeing kind of a range of actual real-world benefits, even in this quite immature, I'd say, kind of version of the model. So this idea of a, of a kind of open and, and kind of growing design library. So obviously, you know, whilst we can kind of keep designing our own things, the big intention is that there's all sorts of designs out there who are getting used to these sorts of technologies and starting to think about design for process. Um, and actually, we've been quite bad at sort of dealing with that so far. So we, we work with a small group who've who we've come to know very intimately around the world, but there's already something like 350 designer onboarding requests from other designers that we're still trying to figure out how to sort of process and work with. But then, of course, when you add on things like personalization and customization, notionally that design space becomes kind of vast. Um, then, of course, there's a kind of global, global sort of global local uh, model um, idea where basically you kind of do have potentially kind of global distribution, but at a fraction of the cost. In fact, with virtually none of the, of the traditional costs associated with a managed supply chain and contractual issues and so forth. And then I guess even more interestingly in terms of what this can actually do for, if you like, the end user, for the customer, uh, we're already seeing that the price of these kind of products delivered through independent makers it sits really comfortably in a gap in the market, which is, is basically between sort of mass-produced, um, you know, flat-pack products like IKEA, for example, and kind of high-design, um, sort of certainly customized, but even, even standard products um, from the high street or, or from sort of established big-name brands. And so the other thing which I think is interesting about this is, of course, how that that cost is actually built up because rather than say a traditional model where you might have something like 250% markup just to deal with retail, um, you know, notionally in this, which is a much lighter weight model, um, you know, some 60% typically of, of the final cost of the product goes to actually the maker, maybe 10% at the moment, and again this is sort of a fluid thing, but 10% goes to the designer and the rest is, is to us and to other costs and so forth. And the other thing that's interesting is the lead times, because, of course, if you try and go through a contract fit-out company or to a high-design kind of brand, you'll often get sort of 8 to 12 weeks quoted for, for fit-outs, whereas in this case, because you're so local and things are happening in small, rapid batches, we see kind of one to four weeks, and, and although we never kind of quote it, we've seen, you know, bespoke furniture turned around in three days and stuff. Um, and finally, of course, there's this idea that there's this new model, there's a kind of local economic multiplier because that money is returning to, the, to, to a local maker and, and fundamentally more is going into the sort of pockets of the producers. But of course, this doesn't sort of come at kind of nil cost. It's really complicated and we're kind of, this is all the stuff we're kind of grappling with as we move forward because you can kind of imagine that as you sort of disaggregate all these processes and get rid of one control point or one, one sort of centralized party, all sorts of stuff starts happening. So obviously on the design side, you know, within the digital design space, one of the things we're quite keen on is this idea that instead of really complex, expensive, slow product development cycles before you go to market, that, you know, notionally if you can deal with some of the other headaches, which I'll mention in a minute, um, you know, as I said, meant, I said earlier, there's sort of this idea of design version, design variation. Someone wanting to, to almost do product recall in a, in a digital sense is quite an interesting question, and so on. So if you, when you've got sort of this idea of a, of a growing uh, design space, you know, how does one publish that to the right parties when you want to? How do you kind of manage that kind of growing library? So that's, there's obviously lots of challenges around that. Then on the other side of the coin, there's the manufacturing itself, you know, as, as well as the, the sort of fundamentals like being able to quote at, a, at the correct price for a product um, and know what the deadline is and the, and the 
lead times and so forth, you know, you need the right file fundamentally. And again, if you imagine there's a lot of things changing in this equation, making sure the right make has the right file on demand to be able to satisfy a job is obviously complex. And finally, like in a sense, the most important one is, is, the, is the customer because, you know, there's, you don't really want infinite choice. So, so how choice and how curation around choice gets presented to you, what is available in different geographies because by virtue of the makers and the materials that you can get and so forth, means that you have to sort of deal with a quite a fluid representation of the whole design space to a customer, particularly if you're trying to do things like online retailing, which, you know, arguably is very difficult with, with furniture products, for example, though, of course... Companies like Made.com and so forth, you know, have shown it's possible. So, in reality, what we're doing is behind the scenes, as a sort of medium to long-term mission, we're really trying to get to the to the grips of some of these complex problems. So, as well as building, um, you know, more robust marketplace-type infrastructure where makers and customers can exchange information and quotes, and this is a very early kind of prototype we're working on at the moment, but. The big thing, I guess, is that we're trying to build an open architecture. So basically, the APIs and the, and the metadata structures and schema in an open source way where people could, at some point, hopefully integrate with these kind of technologies, even as, as third-party producers and so forth. So in practice, we're trying to find ways, even within the constrained set of technologies and products that we're talking about, to encapsulate what is captured within, say, something like an expensive uh, binary CAD, CAD software package or CAD file. Um, and, you know, a lot of complexity around specification and manufacturing within kind of abstract models. And, and this is something that technically we spend a lot of time on. And, you know, that's really just touching the tip of the iceberg because there's some really major challenges on the horizon. And I don't think this just applies to OpenDesk. I think this is the entire kind of maker movement. And if, if it's going to fulfill that promise, I think, uh, of the hype, then there's some really big, big questions. So, obviously, in this space you know, industry standards don't really exist. They haven't matured yet. Um, this is tied into this issue about software interoperability and formats and, and so on. Um, but, you know, then there's also big questions around things like intellectual property. And what we find at the moment is that designers who are wanting to engage with this process are quite au fait with the idea that they're in a digital kind of web-connected world, and therefore they're quite relaxed about intellectual property. So a lot of the, the files we see coming in from the wild, shall we say, are basically set under some sort of Creative Commons license. Often it's not even got a non-commercial restriction, but, you know, I'd say in many cases people will want that too. But, you know, clearly that's not to say we're trying to be divisive. So if someone approaches us and says, well, actually, I don't, I, you know, I want my content to be much more protected, then that becomes another technical challenge of how you, you deal with that infrastructure. And then, of course, there's some really, really big issues which are about the entire kind of legal and social context around things like liability and, and you know, sort of design liabilities versus fitness for purpose, uh, warranty issues, and basically the entire kind of social experience of, of getting products in a new way and where that, where that pushes a bit too far. And I think, for me, the thing is this is only going to get more relevant because we're starting to see things like this happen. So this is a group called... Um, Matter Machine, who are based in New Zealand, who we're collaborating with, and they do some some very clever things, and basically build what's sort of commonly called parametric design software, but they do it in the browser. So the whole idea is they're trying to make an incredibly accessible piece of complex CAD software, which basically allows you to do things like this, where you can take a product, you can make material changes, here you're seeing the top of the product being kind of changed, and it having an instant impact on the, on the 3D model. 
um, you know, adding and removing various options and then getting into kind of terrifying space and basically doing stuff like this, you know, and sort of woe betide you if you have no idea what you're doing when you get to this stage. Um, but I think this for me is a really interesting thing because in a sense this is the sorts of challenge. You know, once, I think for me what's interesting is once technologies become pervasive and accessible, once the barriers get lowered, you kind of can't help but have to deal with the challenges that throws up on an almost societal level. So once it's possible to take a product and, you know, do this to it, and then expose it in anyone's web browser, you know, suddenly it becomes a different kind of challenge. And for me, what's really interesting is, from a design's point of view, is that, you know, you're suddenly having to think of a product not as a physical asset anymore that you're working towards, but actually as a set of relationships, as, as a sort of set of uh, formulae and so forth, if you, you know, if you, if you want to see it that way. But ultimately about a set of choices that you're exposing to others, to end users, to designers, and the degree to which curation then becomes a question of managing that interplay and that interrelationship in a product development cycle, I think, is, is fascinating. And of course, from that kind of graph, that leads you to thinking about this kind of graph. So obviously, in the world of software, things like GitHub have you know, really revolutionized the way that software development can happen in a distributed, collaborative way. Um, and it's not a great leap of faith, I think, to start to imagine, well, what's going to happen when this sort of stuff and these technologies start playing out in the world of, of physical things? You know, and, and again, there's you know, huge, huge questions about that. So I guess, in closing, uh, the thing that we're looking to try and do, and, and you know, God knows how long it's going to take, but we're on that journey. And it's not just us, but I think it's the entire maker movement. It's everyone who's interested in, in these sorts of technologies, is really try and build the right kind of frameworks and, and and infrastructures to facilitate this thing that people often refer to as the third industrial revolution. And to me, what's really kind of empowering or, or exciting, I should say, about this idea is the, is the fact that ultimately what you're doing is, is hopefully unlocking a different kind of, of social economy, a different kind of, of reality around the way we think about design and production as basically far more engaging, far more uh, local and social, and hopefully far more conscious uh, decisions. Wow, that stuff at the end on parametric design just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty frightening, isn't it? as a designer, how how does that feel when stuff kind of gets out of your control? You don't necessarily have have control over it anymore when it gets into other people's hands. How, how does that feel for you? Well, it's a good question. I think what I find interesting is that I think if you like the the control, which we're almost implicitly trying to always apply as designers, just shifts in its position. So, as I said, for me, what's really interesting about that sort of the stuff at the end there about the parametric design is that you suddenly start to think not about, as I say, the physical product in all its you know, purest forms and, and, and all the sort of iterative processes you'd go through normally to get there, mm -hmm. and you start to think much more about framing choice. And I think it's just a different kind of design decision. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I think certainly what this stuff starts to expose, at least in my thinking is, is this interesting question of actually how crucial does it actually make curation again? Does it sort of reflect back on the fact that unless you frame choice in the right way, what you yield is either, either doesn't practically work or is, or is actually sort of impossible to, to kind of conceive of because, you know, as I said, having infinite choice just sort yeah. of almost kills content. So I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's fascinating and very exciting uh, hearing you talk and, and I'd love how you studied all these parts of the production process and you analyze them and you found a model that really, really works. 
uh, I was just wondering, uh, there's a part of manufacturing that is machine-made. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great that you, you chose CNC milling because there's no human hand involved into actually cutting it. And, uh, I w I mean, and your business model and your process sounds amazing. I wonder how would it change if you had a human hand in the cutting bit? Well, it's a very, very good question. As I, and as I say, I think the thing that's interesting is, of course, when, when I tell the story and when we talk about even the way we ended up where we did, which was starting to try and understand the hype of these digital technologies. Because when we began, I genuinely was one of those people who didn't know much about it and thought, wow, these machines where you put one on your kitchen table and you make anything are kind of coming along. And in the process of sort of doing this, we've, we've learned that actually the machine is, is just a tool. And I think what's interesting is, yes, the cutting may be machine to a large extent, but there's a lot of other things around that either side on the material supply chain in the first instance, but then also on the finishing of products, which is still kind of traditional carpentry. And so what I find fascinating is in this, this sort of maker community that, that join and, and make open desks, what you see is actually, as I said, that there are a lot of them are really skilled craftspeople, actually. There's one great example of a company we work with in Devon quite closely because they're just very good makers. And their industry was making church organs, which, as you can imagine, is a really kind of choppy industry to be in. Um, and they have less sensitivity around deadlines and things. And so suddenly they've got the machine, but to them it's just a tool. It's not particularly the exciting part. You know, so as I say, I'll stand up here and I'll talk about the machines, but to the people who use them, they're just, you know, just like any other tool. So I think for me what's disruptive, if you like, or what's exciting is the idea that you can push just far enough to distribute information in a very lean way, but then you're still relying on kind of the human touch at the end of the day, and the degree to which that involves a bit more cutting or a bit less cutting, a bit more standing or a bit less is kind of up for grabs. But more, as I say, the underlying idea is that you're trying to unlock a kind of social process. And, it, and if, you know, it may be then the maturest form that actually OpenDesk has nothing to do with CNC machines anymore, and it's just about lots of local makers and lots of independent designers. You know, it's just a useful proxy, I think, to get the information transmitted. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that kind of, um, my question kind of leads on to what you were just talking about, sort of the, the either ends of the manufacturing process. Um, mm -hmm. I was kind of thinking about as you were talking about that, I was, and you answered the end part with the picture of the transit van, which was lovely. Mm -hmm. um, but I was kind of thinking as you were presenting all the pictures of the desks, that to make a desk like that, you still need to get your hands on a large sheet or many large sheets of wood from yep. somewhere. And whether you've downloaded the kit of parts in San Francisco or the Congo, you're going to need to get some big sheets of wood. So does your lovely disruptive, open and transparent business model still rely on a business model that is very sort of stagnant and stable? It's a very, very good question. The answer is, in some ways at the moment, yes. So we haven't tried to bite off the entire, you know, cake or whatever the right word is. Um, exactly, you know, yeah. We've sort of tried to push down the supply chain to a certain level. But yeah, absolutely, raw materials is one of those absolutely massive. You know, if you, if you, put it, if you look at this whole thing with kind of what's the real sustainability, I guess, of the model, then you would have to ask the question, what about the raw materials? The reason we chose plywood when we started is because it is so readily available, even though the grade, if you really want to get into it from a sort of designer maker's kind of perfectionist eye, and of course the grade and the source play a lot, you know, a big role, but ultimately what you're talking about is certain limits again on the design space in terms of things like material thicknesses and predictability of the behavior of a material which just help you to be able to explore the problem but it is interesting that we've tried with other materials and we've started trying to explore what the impacts would be of completely changing maybe keeping the technology the same for now but changing the material so we did one prototype which was using a material called eco sheet which is basically 
compressed plastic pellets, um, recycled plastic, uh, gives you this kind of um, yeah, sort of predictable, again, board thickness. And it kind of worked, but, you know, that product didn't last as long, shall we say, as, as a wooden product. It kind of, you know, broke when I sat on it once. Um, and the reason for that, ultimately, is just, again, you, when you really get into it, you're down at kind of the material properties level, and, and the, the manufacturing process for that specific raw material is obviously different, and therefore it has different behaviours. But I think, you know, Clearly, in what we're trying to achieve at some point, it becomes about, well, actually, what's the most logical local source of material, which, which a maker uses their discretion to decide is still applicable to the design. And again, this is something I think is really interesting about this line between design as a kind of exercising control and pr production, is, is that you know, we go through loads and loads of iterations in our own designs when we're sitting there together in-house, kind of trying to refine a detail around something, and then you put it on the site, and then you see a po image posted in that workshop page, and it kind of looks nothing like what you thought it was going to look like, but it's basically the same product. So the thing I think is interesting is that the degree of interpretation that's being applied to what you thought your design was is clearly something you don't have control over, and that's kind of interesting. Um, it sort of follows on from that. I think, there's, I think it's really fascinating. I think that, but there is, this, there is this irony that the, this, the, the, the sort of massive a range of choice that comes from a process is is predicated on an eight before sheet mm. um which gives you a design constraint constraint mm. which is effectively flat packing so everything that you so you know is there a future made of plywood and if you're if you're looking at cnc milling from the point of view of three-dimensional stuff if it's you know if it's five axis or whatever all of that's fantastic but then you're you're bringing all the all the complexities around actually the ability of people to work material and produce things, yeah. which I think is no different now than it was three thousand years ago and will be in the future. So I think there's something there's something about the distributed model which I think is fascinating, but there's something about that irony mm. which sits between the 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 beginning points of what you end up with. What you end up with is in lots of cases versions of interconnected elements of of, of milling. And I wonder is where is the where is the the point in this where the human hand has an opportunity to do a little bit more than assemble? Well, to be honest, it already happens quite a lot because you know as as you know I imagine from projects and things you know stuff comes off one machine and off another machine is not the same stuff. So you know the degree to which. As I say, I think what for me on that point was most interesting is we haven't had to convince someone to buy a CNC machine. What I find really interesting is that the reason this is almost viable already today, which we didn't know when we started out, to be honest. I was, again, when I started, I kind of naively was seeing the whole kind of um, open hardware space as being the kind of thing we'd be unlocking, which, of course, is kind of one of the big missions. But what, I, what we found is that the maturity in the market is already out there in, in the segment that for, for whom it makes sense today. So, again, the, the kind of distinction to which it's crafted on, I mean, if you use a saw to cut a piece of wood, is that not, you know, does that take away the, the sort of the hand of, of, of the craftsman? You know, if you're using a computer-controlled saw, how much is that taken away from the hand of the craftsman? So I think the point is that right now, very, very deliberately, and we keep having to kind of remind ourselves to kind of not get complicated on any one of these axes, because we're already, you know, the first thing people say to you when you say we're a three-sided marketplace is you're absolutely insane, you know. Don't try and build a three-sided marketplace. It's far too complicated. But, you know, the, so the point I'm trying to make is we've tried to deliberately limit ourselves on all these things. And I think the truth that we're seeing is that even within those limitations, what you actually unlock is just a right point of basically removing communication overhead, 
to be honest, so that you can start to liberate a model. Where I think if what you were trying to do was communicate the specification for a craftsman to make a product in the absence of digitization, your uptake in, in viable makers would be so much slower because the communication, the learning curve to be onboarded becomes absolutely huge. So, yeah, I think my point is I think I can totally see a day when, you know, I don't start talking about open desk has anything to do with CNC machines, but I think for, for the foreseeable future, it's a very, very useful proxy. Great. Right, let's wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. Of course.